the end of the 40th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. He says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I'm convinced that God wants his people to soar on wings like eagles. I think we live far below God's plans for his people in this world. We live far below God's plans that he, has, that he has for us as children of God, as his disciples, as witnesses in this world. We continually, we continually get lower and lower from what God is hoping for us to be. And I think there are many reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that we forget how complex life is. And we forget how complex people are. And we have a tendency with people to, to make quick decisions and judgments about them. And we put people into categories. And we do it all the time. I'm not sure we even think about it sometimes. But we, we categorize people by their political views. We categorize people by their theological perspective. We, we categorize people by where they were educated how old they are, what their occupation is, the things that we've heard them say. We are continually categorizing people. And once we get a handle on what we think people are about, then we put them into a nice, neat box. And we feel like now we know them. And if something arises, we're pretty sure this is how they're going to respond. If something comes up, this is what they're going to do. And there's a, there's a bit of a sense of security in that, in our relationship with people and how we view people. And that's what makes it so difficult when out of the blue, people do something completely different than what we thought they were going to do. You know, a, a person who has declared themselves to be a Democrat says, you know, that Republican's got a pretty good idea. Or a staunch Republican says, that Democrat has a pretty good idea. Or a Calvinist says, you know what, that Arminian thought isn't so bad. Or a Wesleyan says, that Baptist idea isn't so bad. And all of a sudden, it feels like everything is shaken. And the foundations of our relationships and how we understand people, are, they're just not, it's not right. And, and we, because we forget how complex people are. We're so worried about categorizing people and putting people into boxes so that we feel more comfortable with them that we miss the complexity of human beings and of human relationships. I'm convinced that the reason, the reason human beings are so complex and the reason life is so complex is because God is complex. And we too forget that. You know, we, we, we have encounters with God... We have experiences with God, and, and they're so awesome and they're so wonderful that we quickly decide that this is the way God is. And all the while, God's so much bigger. This is what the scriptures keep telling us over and over again from the beginning to end, that God is, is much bigger than our ability to describe him and to understand him even. In his, in his new book, uh, The Bible Made Impossible, Christian Smith talks about um, many of the ways in which 
evangelicals interpret and use Scripture. And, and he makes some really good points that we need to hear. But as one, review, one reviewer wrote, he, his central thesis is really the Bible is impossible. And, and the reason for that statement is because the Bible has so many contradictory statements that there's no way both of them can be true. And if they both can't be true, and yet the Bible is trying to tell us they are both true, then the Bible is not, no longer trustworthy. The Bible is not wholly trustworthy as we declare it to be. But what he misses is that these, these seemingly contradictory statements are really just the, the writers, writers of Scripture, their, their way of trying to describe the multifaceted design of our infinite God for finite human beings. Now, instead of being embarrassed about the contradictions, instead of running from them or, or trying to act like they, they don't exist, we embrace them because it simply reminds us that the infinite God is so much bigger than us. And this is the only way we have have been able to find to describe him in his greatness. And as we've been talking the last few weeks, this, this idea of paradox and tension is really at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Almost everything we believe has an alternate paradox, an alternate tension to it. And we're continually in this wrestling match of the tensions, the paradoxes, the seeming contradictions that actually they only make sense when you put them together, not when you tear them apart. And one of those contradictions, seemingly, one of those paradoxes, one of those tensions that I think is, has been so difficult for the church to grasp, particularly the more contemporary church in the last 20, 30, 40 years is this idea of old and new. In the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, Calvin says to his little pet tiger one day, Mom and Dad drive me crazy. You know, they don't understand me. I don't understand them. It's hopeless. I'm related to people I can't relate to. And there is something of the church in that. You know, we, we struggle to relate to each other, particularly on this issue of old and new, past and present. One solution that we sometimes attempt is just act like there is no difference. We just, we just pretend that, that we don't see things differently and hope that everything will be okay. But that usually doesn't work, and often it leads to the second solution we try, and that is fighting about it. You know, we decide, you know, we're going we're gonna to fight this thing out. We're going to decide who's right. And it's ended up tearing the church to pieces. I think the solution God is looking for in his people is to have people who, who have a sense of courage and enough love for each other that instead of running from it, we embrace it. We've come to see that the tension is God's plan. That it's not one or the other, but it's both and. And we address it. Elton Trueblood said that if a a man wants to get away from the, the difficult effects of paradox, then he needs to just ignore the Christian faith altogether. And this is what we find in this, in this dilemma of old and new. 
We read the scriptures and we see so clearly that God calls his people to remember his old ways from the past. You read the scriptures and he talks about remember, 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 remember. Hundreds of times God asks his people to remember. He tells the Israelites, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I parted the waters and you walked across on dry ground. Remember how I brought you into the land of Canaan. Remember how I, I sent you the great king. Remember all the things that I've done for you. God says to, to Moses, standing at the bush, and Moses says, who, who do I tell people you are? They're sending me to Pharaoh, and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who has done these things in the past, and that's how you know me. And God says to the prophet Malachi, I do not change. Who I was in the past, I am today. There is something so necessary and important and foundational about understanding God in the past. In fact, so much so that God doesn't just tell the Israelites to remember. He gives them all these ways to remember. He creates festivals and and feasts and gathering points for them so that they will remember what he's done in the past. Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, All of these ways in which the people come together for the sole purpose of remembering and celebrating what God has done for them in the past. And the church fathers of the first few centuries realized that Christians need similar ways of remembering. And so they started creating ways for for the church to remember. One of the most significant is the church calendar. And, And they created this calendar To take us through the life and ministry of Jesus. And so it begins with Advent where where we prepare for the coming of of the Messiah just as the Israelites do. And then the season of Christmas where we celebrate the incarnation of God coming into this world in human flesh as a baby. And we move into Epiphany where Christ reveals himself to be the Son of God and to be the Savior not just of the Jews but of all people. And then we move to Lent. The season that begins this this Wednesday. And Lent is a time of, of contemplating the passion and the suffering and the death of Christ for our sins. And that leads us to the glorious day of Easter. Where we celebrate the, the risen Christ and this conquering of death. And the next 50 days are about the resurrection and celebrating Easter. Until we eventually come to the day of Pentecost... Where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and the church is born and we live out our faith in the power of the Spirit. And eventually it brings us back around to Advent again. Now, you know, I didn't grow up with recognizing the calendar. We didn't talk about the church calendar when I, when I was growing up in the church I was raised. And, and you know, my opinion was, you know, that's, that's not a good thing for us to do. But, you know, you realize... It's something that reminds us about Jesus. What could be bad about that, right? It's just helping us remember what God has done for us in Christ. I think the evangelical church often wrestles with how we're going to handle that. Because on the one hand, we have, we're being asked to celebrate the, the civic holidays. But the church is calling us to celebrate the Christian holy days. 
We need that kind of foundation to remember what God has done, to look back and to see how God has worked so we know how God will continue to work, that he's faithful and good and just and trustworthy. But as with anything, we, we can turn that into something negative so that a ritual that can help us can become ritualistic. And a tradition that helps set foundation can become, a tr- can, we can become tr- a traditionalism about it. And we can get so enamored with the past that the present, our present lives become stagnant. And that's why the scriptures tell us that continually that God loves to do new things. God loves to do new things for his people. Jeremiah says, the time is coming when I will send, a, bring to you a new covenant. The, the, the psalmist declares a number of times, sing a new song to the Lord. And Isaiah says, forget the things of the past because I am doing a new thing among you. Just as we need the past and need to remember and engage that, we also need to see God at work in the present, in the new. God is never satisfied with the status quo. And he doesn't want his people to be satisfied with the status quo. He wants us to keep moving forward to see the new ways in which God is at work. Because he is continually doing new things. And there's something energizing about new things. You know, a new job can be frightening, but it can also be energizing. A new project can be overwhelming, but it can also be energizing. It gets your creativity flowing. You start, you get out of sort of the mundane schedule of life and you start thinking differently. And I think God is continually calling us to, to new ways of thinking and new ways of seeing him and experiencing him. But we also can twist that too. We can come to the place where we're so enamored with the new that we worship the new. In fact, we live in a culture that worships the new. If you go to a store and you buy a computer, as soon as you walk out the door, that computer's outdated. It's old. In fact, it's old probably sitting on that shelf because the other one's waiting in the warehouse to replace it. You buy a car, you drive it off the lot. It's old. Clothing. You know, and you know, we, we talk about... I was going to, um, I was going to bring my senior picture that uh, had um, my uh, had a powder blue leisure suit, that, uh, but I, nobody wanted to see that. So this is the closest thing I can find. Now this is something that needed something new done to it. We needed to get rid of that. That was a fashion that should have ended a lot sooner than it did. Some of you have worn leisure suits, I'm sure. But we get so enamored with the new. We're always being told. It's about that new is always best. And if you don't have the newest thing, if you don't think about it in the newest way, well, you know, why even mess with life? And the church has too often bought into that philosophy. We've said, you know, what's happened in the past doesn't matter. It's all about now. It's all about new. And in fact, we are, as a church, we're looking for the newest, the hottest, the the fastest. That's what we want. Because we feel like that's the only way we can connect to culture and, and be relevant. If we 
disregard the past and only think about the new. And we end up worshiping the new. We all are susceptible to ignoring the past and to closing ourselves off from the new, one or the other. Because we, we aren't real fond of change. And it doesn't matter if the change is, is about something old or something new. The only kind of change we like is the change that we initiate. If it's our idea to change it, I don't understand why everybody else doesn't think it's the best thing that ever happened. But if somebody else's idea and it's making us change, we resist that. It's just human nature. We like comfortableness. We like the patterns that we develop. Patterns of thinking, patterns of living, patterns of talking, patterns of acting. That makes us feel secure and comfortable. But what we forget is that everything that is old was at one time new. And everything that's new will at one time be old. It's the way life is. It reminds me of the parable I read years ago about this tribe of people that um, lived in this beautiful lush valley. Green grass and wide streams, plenty of game. And they were prosperous and they grew. And in fact, they grew so much and were so prosperous that they discovered that the grass wasn't green enough. And the stream wasn't wide enough and the game was depleted. And they didn't know what to do. And there were some young heroes in that tribe who said, We've heard that just over the next mountain, the grass is even greener and the stream is even wider. And and the game is plentiful. Let's go. And they, they walked over and they made a scouting trip and they peeked over the, over the mountain and they came rushing back and said, it's true, it's true, let's go. There's a group of people in, in that tribe that were called the Council of the Old Men Who Know. And they said, we can't do that. We don't really know what that's like. How would we get there? And what would happen? Are we going to make it that trip? And we don't know when we would go. And there's just too many questions. We know what we have here. We're just going to stay here. And that's what they did. Until eventually, because all the resources were depleted, they began to die off. And finally, a few of the survivors got themselves together. And they made the trek over the mountain. And it was exactly what they thought it was. And they began to grow and prosper. So much so that for them, soon the grass wasn't green enough and the stream wasn't wide enough and the game was depleted. And there were some young heroes in that tribe that said, we've heard just over the next mountain, the grass is greener and the stream is wider and the game is plentiful. We ought to go. But you know what happened? Those original young heroes had now become the council of the old men who know. And they said, we stay. We're all susceptible. It doesn't matter which perspective we have. And we miss out on so much of God's plans for us. It's as though we were, we'd gotten together, people, a group of people gotten together and decided that they were going to erect a hundred story skyscraper. And they began, obviously, working on the foundation. And when the foundation was completed, some of the people said, this is the most amazing foundation I've ever seen. This is beautiful. It's so deep and wide and it's perfect. 
you know what? We don't need a building. Let's just keep the foundation. This is awesome. And the other group of, the other group of people are so, were so enamored with the top of the building and, and the exquisite nature of how it was going to be designed and, and what it would look like from a distance. And it was awesome. And they said, let's just build the top. We don't need the rest of the building. And they ended up not accomplishing what they were intending to accomplish. Because all they could see was either the foundation or the top. And I've come to to believe, because I see it in myself, that I think the the root of our struggle is is our sinful self-centeredness that often comes out in subtle arrogance. We have this awesome experience with God. And and we want everybody else to have that experience with God. God has so touched our lives and he's worked in our lives and and he's changed us and it's been phenomenal. And, And we want other people to know that same change. And so we say to them, you ought to have this same experience that we've had. But it quickly can move from you ought to have the same experience to... If you don't have the same experience, you don't really have an experience. If you don't see things and experience God the way I do, then something is wrong with your experience. And again, it doesn't matter if you're talking about something old or something new. It really doesn't make any difference. We all are susceptible to that kind of self-centered arrogance. And we begin to think it's all about me. We put God in this little tiny box that says, this is how God works. This is how God does things. This is how I can know God. And that's it. And it's not just, it's not just tragic, it's catastrophic. Because you look back at how the the religious leaders approached Jesus. and, And you've got people who who have ignored how God has worked in the past, and they miss him. And you've got people who can't believe that God could work any different and be new, and they miss him. Because God doesn't operate the way they believe he should operate. And we're all susceptible to that. Thinking that we know best... It's in our human sinfulness. Anne Lamott, uh, the author, talks about how people often respond to her. And you, you may or may not agree with her theological perspectives. But people who disagree with her have this habit of coming to her and telling her that. Or writing her about it. And it seems to, she says, it seems to always end up that people are saying that, in essence, the way she views Christ and Christianity is leading her right into the gates of hell. And she's come up with a response with people, to people that she says, you know, you know the difference between you and God? God never thinks he's you. <laughs> it's so hard for us. And again, it's not out of bad motives. It's out of good motives. We've had this awesome experience with God and how he's spoken to us. And and we want everybody else to see that and to experience that. But then it becomes, it's really just about the way I see it. 
this passage in Matthew 13 that we read ends with a ends with a really interesting statement that Jesus makes. He says, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And I think that Jesus is trying to help us understand that it is this tension of new and old that puts us in a place to most clearly and adequately hear God and experience God. I'm convinced that if we aren't willing to embrace the new ways and the old ways of God, both of them, if we aren't willing to experience and to embrace both of them, we will miss out on a lot of the surprising ways in which God wants to work in our lives. Now, granted, there are, there are preferences that we have about how we hear God and how we experience God. And, and I don't think God is trying to tell us to stop those things or to deny that or to move away from them. Those are the ways that we are, in one sense, we're wired. It's, how, it's our experiences. And, and we ought to embrace those and give thanks to God for those and not let go of those. But even as we do that, we also ought to embrace other ways in which God speaks to us. And if, if your way is, is God working in, in things that you would put into the old category, then I think God is calling you to be open to new ways in which he works. And if, and if you fall in the category of looking for the new things of God in your life, then you need to be open to some of the old ways in which God works. It's never one or the other. It's both and. Because God loves to surprise us. And yes, God primarily works through the typical way that we experience him. But I think when he wants to do something extra important in our lives, when he wants to take us to a much deeper place, usually it's through something unexpected. And the question we're continually confronted with is, are we open to that? Are we going to let him? Are we willing to embrace those different ways in which God speaks into our lives? In his book, That Incredible Christian, A.W. Tozer has a little section, about four pages, that he calls, The Truth is Two-Winged. And he talks about how the only way that a bird can fly is to use both wings. Imagine in your mind a bird that held one wing to its breast and tried to fly with just one. Wouldn't, I don't think it would get off the ground, and if it did, it might just go around in circles. And the truth of the gospel, over and over and over again, is two-winged. And the only way that you and I will ever soar as the people of God, is if we are using both wings. And in this case, embracing the old ways and the new ways in which God works and wants to work in our hearts and lives. And I think God is looking for people who are that open, who are that willing, that ready to embrace whatever way He wants to to speak to us and work in us. 
So are we willing to do that? Are we willing to to let God speak to us, not only in the ways we're used to, but in the ways we're not? In the old and the new, in the comfortable and the uncomfortable, in the familiar and the unfamiliar, through the past, through the present. If we want to soar, we have to use both wings. Gracious Father, this is a hard word for us because, you know, we, we love the security of, of sameness and patterns. And, and yet, Lord, help us to see that you are far more complex And you're calling us to something bigger and greater because you want us to soar with you. Holy Father, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.